Thus endeth today's lesson. Amen. Annas and Caiaphas, they thought that they were in a rerun. They had been there before. It couldn't have been more than eight or ten or twelve weeks at the most that they were right there in that same courtroom. Before them that day stood also another Galilean, a young person by the name of Jesus, and he had some startling claims to make. But they thought they'd gotten rid of him through their influence with Pontius Pilate. Jesus had been crucified, killed, and the high priest thought that they were rid of him. And now, just a few weeks later, there wasn't one but two of them now standing before the same court in the same courtroom. They were being asked some of the same questions that these priests had asked Jesus, and they were getting some of the same answers, and the Bible tells us that these priests recognized that Peter and John had been with Jesus. How do people recognize the fact that we have been with Jesus? That's a question people have played with for a long time. Some individuals think that the way to identify with Jesus is to get your name on a church roll at ten more often than you do not, <laughs> and the world will know that you're a Christian. Today, men as well as women are caught up in a way of identification with our Lord. They wear crosses around their necks. And this is supposed to be a sign that I am with Jesus. Other people carry big Bibles. The bigger the better. They memorize scripture and they punctuate conversation with words from the Holy Writ, hoping that this will show that they know Jesus. Young folks sing a song some of us like. They shall know we are Christians by our love, by our love. They shall know we are Christians by our love. I guess these are all ways of helping the world to know with whom we are identified. But notice how the Sanhedrin recognized the presence of Jesus Christ in Peter and in John. It was because of their boldness, boldness, parousia, that's the Greek, parousia. And parousia is a word that's very difficult to interpret and define in our English language. It, it means speech which is 
which is open and brutally frank, speech that is complete and concise and simple and direct. It is speech that once it is spoken, there's nothing more that can be said. It is saying it all. That's parisia. You young people, you know what parisia is. You experience it all the time with mother and dad. You go and you ask to do something. They say no. You ask a second time. They say no. You go, you ask a third time, a fourth time, and a fifth time, and then they take you by the shoulder. They look you squarely in the eye. They say emphatically, without any embarrassment or without any shame whatsoever that this is exactly how it's going to be and they don't want to hear another thing about it that's it finished that's parisia the disciples peter and john were known by their parisia by their bold by their statements that they made without any shame, without any embarrassment, that they spoke with conviction. And what was this boldness, this parousia? These individuals, when asked how they were to help a lame man and what power and authority they used for a lame man, a man who had been 40 years crippled, how he could be healed. They said that they did it in the name of Jesus Christ. The Jesus Christ whom you crucified, the Jesus Christ whom God raised from the dead, the Jesus Christ who is the glue that holds all things together, who he himself is the cornerstone, and, and please, Christian folks, listen to this. And the Jesus Christ, who is alone, alone, the Savior of the world. For there is no other name under heaven among men by which a person must or can be saved. Now get this. Because that's how the enemies of Jesus in the first century recognized the followers of the Christ. By what they said distinctly, what they enunciated clearly, by what they said without any embarrassment or shame, that Jesus Christ is exclusively and the only Savior of the world. They were saying what we need to say, that other religions may be good, but the Christian faith, Jesus Christ, is the only authentic way. What these people were saying was that if there is going to be reconciliation with a person, be with God, if there is to be a renewal of self-acceptance, if there is to be release from the burden of sin, if there is to be reunification with people with whom you are estranged, if you are to realize your destiny and purpose for life, you cannot do it 
without meeting, following the teachings and life of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. There is no other way whatsoever, for Jesus alone is the way, the truth, and the life. No person, no person can ever go to the Father except through Jesus Christ. Now, you can't make it any more clearer than that. That is a bold statement, and it arrests the, attentions, the attention of listeners. And it is a statement which many so-called educated people today do not like to hear. And we best face it that many people, some of whom are in church every Sunday, they don't like to hear that. And it's difficult. We who have friends who are Jews, Muslims, Hindus, agnostics, and we think they're pretty good people. We don't like to hear that Jesus Christ is alone, the sole and only Savior of the world. Exclusively, he has the right to salvation. We, who live in a nation that seems overly obsessed with the rights of people and individual opinions as being something that really is greater than what it is, it's very difficult for us to accept that idea that Jesus Christ alone is the way, the truth, and the life. Those of us who have been trained, educated, in the philosophy of humanism. And ladies and gentlemen, please, never make a mistake. We live in the age of humanism. It's the biggest thing that competes with the Church of Jesus Christ today. But we live in it. We are trained in it. Humanism. People who live in that type of, of influence do not like to hear that Jesus is the only way. And people who like to feel liberal and proud of themselves because of their tolerance, we don't like to think that there's only one way. I drag this out so that you can see that maybe some of us fit into that particular category of not really wanting to believe such a strong, bold claim of Scripture and of the Christian Church, just so that I can say politely and kindly and as lovingly as I possibly can, ladies and gentlemen, what you and I think really doesn't matter too much. Scripture, Jesus Christ, religion, like science, is is interested in truth, not on opinion. Christianity, like science, is interested in what is, not what we think about it. Christianity 
is interested and deals with the facts and is interested not so much in what appeals to us, but what claims us. In science, you see, we, we may not necessarily agree with the law of, of gravity. <laughs> and many of us, by the reckless ways we drive our automobiles and the careless and precarious ways we put our stepladders up against a tree or a house when we have a job to do, or the foolish, unnecessary risks that we run, we are actually saying we, we really don't believe that the law of gravity will affect us this time. And when we get to the hospital and we're treated, we are proven we're wrong, you see. But the law of gravity works, whether we believe in it or not. And it is the same in America as it is in China. The law of gravity is universal. You can have in your medicine cabinet at home a bottle that has a label written upon it, poison. You know, it really doesn't matter whether or not you believe that label or not. What you believe does not change the substance that's in the bottle. Personally, two plus two equals four, that truth does not appeal to me, especially around income tax time. But whether or not it appeals to me, it has a claim on me, as the IRS service knows. The truth that is in Jesus Christ will not appeal to everyone. And not everyone will accept that truth, but that truth has its claim upon everyone. Whether you, and I like it, or not, the truth is that Jesus Christ is the only Son of God and the only Savior in the world. And that truth is not based upon some philosopher's ideas or upon some preacher's whims, but upon facts, upon the fact of history, a fact that is called Christmas Day, when God came down in Jesus Christ just as he predicted he would. It's a fact that is based upon the truth called Easter, when God in Jesus Christ was raised from the grave just as he predicted he would. It's a fact that is based upon an historical day in history, a day called Pentecost, when God came revealing himself in all of his power of the Holy Spirit just as Jesus said he would come. Our religion is based upon facts. Just as December 7th, 1971, or 1941, is a fact of history in our lives, a day of infamy, a day that we don't like, but a day that stands because it happened in truth. The opponents and the world recognize Peter and John as having been with Jesus 
because of their boldness in proclaiming that Jesus Christ, he alone, is the Savior and the Lord of life. And they recognized Jesus in them because they stood on that particular conviction. And they recognized, I believe, Jesus in these people, not so much with what they said, as what they did following what they said. These were individuals who, in the midst of the biggest trial in their lives, in the midst of life and death, these individuals, because of what they believe, they had the boldness to be calm, to be cool, to be comfortable and content in that ugly situation. They were confident. They were bold enough to be courageous. They were people whose conduct and character revealed that they were in communion with Jesus Christ. That's how they were recognized. Those people who saw Peter and John standing there, they saw Jesus standing there as well. Why should they not see Jesus? These people had been with the Lord. They had been with him for three years in ministry. They had been with him for 40 days after Easter. They had been with him in prayer that morning when in the power of the Spirit they talked with their Lord. Those disciples, they had consumed the words of Jesus and had digested them. They had been at the well of Jesus' spirit and have allowed his spirit to infect their veins and these people, they were so much in close contact in communion with Jesus that Jesus actually lived within them. Like Paul, they said, it is no longer I but Christ who liveth within me. And when people saw them, people saw Jesus. And they couldn't help but recognize that they had and were with Jesus. You see, there's absolutely nothing, even to this day, that is greater in impact and influence than character and conduct. For every individual who gets his idea about Christ from Scripture, there are hundreds of individuals who get their idea of Jesus from seeing you and me. Therefore, you see, what happens here today is really not that important. The greatest agent for evangelism and confronting people with the claims and the demands of the gospel does not come from the preacher in the pulpit, but the persons in the pew when they go out and through their character and through their conduct, especially as they are involved in the trials of life. 
That is when people are looking to see whether or not you and I have been with Jesus. And that is where so much damage is done in the name of Jesus Christ. For those of us who profess to be Christians in the trials of our life, we act like we never knew the man. As Caiaphas and Anna state, they really believed they had been here before. They were repeating the same scene. And they had been there before with Jesus. And he was with them now in Peter and John. And Peter and John, you see, they had been there before. They had been to the palace. They had been to that courtroom area. We're not quite sure what John was doing, but remember the night in which Jesus was betrayed and arrested and brought to this very same courtroom? Peter followed away back, and he stood outside in the courtyard trying to warm himself in front of a fire. And you'll remember that night, according to Luke, a teenage girl came up and pointed her finger at Peter and said, Thou also art one of them. You were with Jesus. And remember what Peter did? He cursed and he swore and he said, Woman, I never knew the man. It was in this place on that night that Peter heard the cock crow. And the Bible said he went out and he wept. He ran away like a coward. But now, eight, ten, twelve weeks later, Peter is back. And instead of running like a coward, he's crowing himself. He has a boldness. He is standing before the same people that Jesus stood before. No longer do young girls with their pointed fingers frighten him. Now he is Peter, not shifting sand, but Peter the rock. And here he is standing with calmness and coolness and confidence and courage and completely in control of the situation, standing before the most powerful people in religion, saying unto them things that they did not want to hear. And you say, what is the difference? Why is Peter now like this when he was such a weakling before? The answer, you see, is Easter. Before Easter, Peter was a coward. After Easter, Peter was bold. After Easter and Pentecost, this man became a new man. This man, instead of being wet sand, now became as hard as a rock. This man became bold. This man became strong. This man became a new person. This man found his destiny through the boldness that comes to any Christian who believes in Easter and who believes in Pentecost. This man had a conviction. That night in the courtyard. He really didn't know what he believed. He was mixed up and confused. But this day he knew exactly what he believed. And because of that, not only did Peter find his personal destiny, 
But an organization called the Church had its beginning, which was based upon the conviction that Peter and John held and was dressed with courage and confidence by people who held such conduct and character. I preach this sermon today because oftentimes I think we forget what Easter's all about. When are we ever going to learn that Easter is not the end of Holy Week, but merely the beginning of a bold life? Throughout the world, the Sunday after Easter is usually a down day. Churches half-filled, preachers away on vacations, people are down. They think it's all over. Ladies and gentlemen, it's just beginning. Thank God for you people who have come back, <laughs> who have brought your, your fears and your cowardice. And now because of Easter and because of coming Pentecost, you feel the presence, you know a conviction, you have the truth, and you're willing to say, this is it. And no matter what storm will come, you will stand there in confidence and in courage and having to, after having done all still, to stand. That's what it's all about. There are people out there. There are people in here. There are people in your homes and in other people's homes who, believe me, ladies and gentlemen, are desperately waiting for conviction. They're waiting for some authoritative word about life. They want to know how life is to be lived. They're tired of the cults. They're fed up on the drugs. They want to find that which they think they have been missing, and we have the answer. There are people out there who are just waiting to see Jesus, but they're not going to see Jesus unless they see him in you and in me, when during the trials of life we don't lose our heads, when a three-mile island comes or whatever catastrophe comes, we don't jump into panic. But because we serve a risen Savior who is even greater than death, we have calmness, we have confidence, we have boldness. So ladies and gentlemen, remember we are Easter people. We have been blessed with the power of God's Holy Spirit. We have it. Let's share it with the world. Let's present the truth in all of its conviction. And let's be Christian in character and in conduct. And many, many people will know what it is to become a living part of the church. And don't be surprised what boldness in the Christian sense will do for you.
Father, we are in this world because you have called us. You have called us at this particular time in history. We are to be your hands and your feet, and we are not to hide our candles, but we are to be the light of the world. O thou who art the torch and the essence of all light, help us to be sure that our light comes from you, and help us with boldness to help the world see Jesus. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of his Holy Spirit be and abide with you all now and forevermore. Amen.